Take your Bible with me and turn to the Gospel of John. Uh, John chapter 2, this morning we're going to be looking at uh, verses 13 through 17 in John chapter 2. Uh, and uh, actually, as a, because there's a little bit extra in this little story here, um, I, I'm going to actually read through verse 22, but we're going to focus our attention on verses 13 through 22 this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's a stack of uh, hardcover Bibles in the back there. Uh, go ahead and pick one up, and if you have one of those in front of you, you'll find the sermon text on page 1054. Uh, and if you don't have a copy of God's Word, if you're here this morning and you don't have a copy of Scripture, there are uh, Bibles on the table uh, underneath the, the offering box. You can pick up a Bible there, uh, and that's our gift to you this morning. Also, if you are sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with someone in your life and you want to gift them a Bible, by all means, take one of those and use it for that purpose, that purpose as well. John chapter 2 beginning in verse 13, and I'll read through verse 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins and the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons... Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The 1998 Winter Olympics were held in Nagano, Japan, and that year the, uh, the U.S. Uh, hockey team was by far and away the favorite. There were a, they were the, the favorite to win the gold that year, and, uh, but on February 19th of 1998, they ran up against the Czech Republic in, a, in, a, uh, in an elimination game. And uh, they lost in embarrassing fashion, four to one. Uh, later, the next day, uh, the Associated Press reported uh, something that took place after that loss occurred, uh, and they reported in uh, in uh, in an article titled "Angry U.S. Hockey Players Trash Rooms." The Associated Press article said three apartments in a complex shared by as many as twenty players were vandalized. Ten chairs were broken and three fire extinguishers were emptied and six of the chairs and a fire extinguisher were thrown from a fifth floor apartment to a courtyard below. No injuries were reported. Can you imagine the AP article that was written after, after Jesus did what he did in the temple? Can you imagine that with me? Um, angry rabbi trashes temple, something like that. Maybe that would be the title. And and next week, we're going to consider the response to the action that Jesus takes. This week, we're just going to consider in verses 13 through 17, the the actual action that Jesus performs as a result of the severity of the situation. 
But if you'll remember several weeks ago when we were in John's Gospel and we were processing together uh, the wedding at Cana in Galilee, we saw some very specific things about Jesus. But now we're seeing another side of Jesus. We're seeing something that appears to be very different, a different angle of who Jesus is. In the Earlier in chapter 2 in John, we saw that Jesus was the life of the party. He, he was the one who was, who, was, uh, who was keeping the party going by turning the water to wine. And not just for the sake of the people who were participating in the party, but because uh, he was declaring uh, out loud that the Messiah had come. That the one who came to deliver God's people from their sin was present. He was there. The Messianic age had come about. And he was doing so with a celebration. Jesus was the life of the party. But when we get to verse 13, John, the gospel writer, directs our attention to Jesus driving people out of the temple, dumping coins on the floor, and flipping tables over. This is a very different picture, a very different portrait of of Jesus. When, when we get to verse 13, we see that, that Jesus arrives at the temple in Jerusalem because of the Passover. Uh, since Jesus was from Galilee, he was from Nazareth, uh, this would not have been a long journey for him, and so he would have made the journey. Uh, anyone, of, uh, the, anyone of the Jewish people who were within traveling distance at Passover would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, uh, and, uh, and they would, they would uh, go to, to worship at that time. There were many other Jews that lived in the world that were, uh, that were dispersed much further, and some of them couldn't make the trip, but for everyone who could, uh, they would. And so when Jesus shows up for Passover, he finds a group of people who are, who are trying to make, make a buck. Uh, the offerings uh, that people would need to make, maybe not necessarily at Passover, but for their uh, for for themselves, uh, would be would come in the form of say sheep and pigeons and cattle, which were exactly the things that were being sold in the temple. And there were money changers present as well. We learned that at the end of fourteen, because in the ancient world, currency, uh, even though Galilee was not terribly far from Jerusalem. In our world, if we go to the East Coast or the West Coast, travel a few thousand miles, we, our money's still good there. But in Galilee, uh, say in Nazareth, uh, to go to Jerusalem, there would have had to been an exchange that happened in order to, to have the right currency to actually make the purchase. So the money changers were there, and uh, since the exchange rate wasn't, wasn't published or maybe as fixed as it is today, um, they probably skimmed a little bit off the top as well. So uh, sheep, pigeons, cattle being sold to those who needed to make offerings and money changers there. And this is all happening in the temple and it's a racket. It's a a racket. And how Jesus responds is, again, maybe a little bit different than we expect him to respond. Because this isn't gentle Jesus, meek and mild right here. He's, He's flipping a table. He's getting after it. There are people who need to hear and see that there's something going on. He goes beast mode, gets a whip, trashes. The question that I have to ask as a result of this is, does this cut against our grain of our understanding of Jesus? Does this cut against the grain of who we think Jesus is? 
and, and not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Maybe that's not your understanding, but the reality is that uh, this doesn't necessarily fit within the confines or maybe the parameters we see how Jesus acts. Jesus doesn't reason with people. He doesn't act. He doesn't ask them nicely to move their business out of the temple. He doesn't say, excuse me, God loves you, but I really think that you should consider some, something else, some different business. Am I cutting out? No? Okay, cool. I don't have an issue with my first sermon. Jesus just flips the table. He just flips the table, and he drives people out with a whip. Does that cut against your grain? Does that cut against the grain of who you think Jesus is? When I was in elementary school, WWJD bracelets were popular. Does anyone remember those? WWJD bracelets, everyone wore them, and it stood for what would Jesus do? And my question always, when, when people were wearing those, like, well, Jesus did this. Part of what, is this part of what WWJD culture represents? I don't think they considered this passage when marketing those bracelets. So again, what do we make of this passage? What is this about? Because it would kind of seem more like Jesus acts like uh, hockey players in Nagano in hotel rooms than, than WWJD culture or what it would Jesus or dental Jesus make in mild. And I think that we're pressed to consider this. This is, I think, what our important takeaway should be from this text. I think we're pressed to consider that through Jesus, God establishes the purity of his dwelling place. Through Jesus, God establishes the purity of his dwelling place. Now, I want you to think about that very closely with me because the way that this unfolds is maybe a little bit different than we think it might. Jesus, what Jesus does here by cleansing the temple is actually going to point us forward to what Jesus does on the cross and what he establishes for his people there. But we'll get there. But first, let, I just want to walk through the text and consider some of the things here that we see happening. The first thing I want you to just see is the severity of the situation. I think maybe when we read, if you're sitting down in your Bible reading plan, you get to John chapter 2 and you read that Jesus cleanses the temple, like, cool, that's ha that happened, and then you move on. But there really needs to be some type of grappling with this. What what type of situation would call for this type of activity from Jesus? What, what, what is the situation and why is it so severe that Jesus acts this way? Uh, there are several things I think that we can, we can say. Uh, the first that the, is that the temple stood at the center of Jewish life. There was no place more sacred for, for the Jewish people than the temple. Dr. Bill Cook puts it like this. He says, the importance of the temple in Judaism cannot be overstated. The temple was not, not only the central shrine where atonement for sin was made, but it was considered to be God's primary dwelling place. So like, for the Jewish people, the, the temple is where God lives. Of course, God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's all over. But, but where the presence of God was made manifest was in the temple. And it was an incredibly important fixture then for the Jewish people, where they went to worship, where they went to pray, and this is what Jesus sees the intent of the temple at. 
Before the temple, though, there was the tabernacle. It was a tent, um, a tent-like structure. The temple is a, a fixed building, but the tabernacle was a tent. And the Old Testament gives tons of requirements for God's dwelling place in the tabernacle, from dimensions down to proper activity and and uh, and even order of worship. The tabernacle and then subsequently the temple were places of worship. And Jesus says here in our text, he says, do not make my father's house a house of trade, which implies that it's for some other use, which is worship and, and prayer. What is happening here in the temple in this text is an obvious violation, an obvious violation of the intent of the temple. And also we can say that the, the temple is the place where atonement was made for the sins of the people. So once a year on the Day of Atonement, uh, or Yom Kippur, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifices for the sins of the people. And so uh, the temple is the dwelling place of God. Uh, the temple is a place of worship and prayer. The temple is uh, the place where atonement for sin is made. We see that the occasion for this text, though, in this event, is the Passover. So when we see animals being sold, and when we see money being exchanged, uh, this is all happening because of the people making a long journey, coming in from a, a good distance, right? Because they would have to have their 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 uh, their money exchanged to the proper currency, and then uh, if they were going to make an offering of one of these animals, um, they, would have, uh, they would have found it more convenient, right, to purchase it there than to, than to lug an ox all the way to Jerusalem. That's the way that it would have happened. And, uh, and these offerings that the people made weren't necessarily required at the Passover, but it was sort of a, let's kill two birds with one stone. We've got to make a trip to Jerusalem, so since we'll, make it, we'll off, do our offerings while we're there also. And so the people who are doing the buying and selling here in the temple are the ones who are like, well, we, we can make a quick buck by doing this, right? That's good business. If you told me the story and I would say, yeah, well, of course they did that. That's good business, right? Like they, 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 they saw a need and they met it. But the reality is that what happens is it turns the temple into a Walmart on Black Friday instead of, instead of a place of, of worship. If we look at this, the way that Jesus addresses this, though, he's not necessarily frustrated with the business itself, but he's frustrated with the location of it. And the location is an important thing to think about here. The practice of selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, historically, that's perfectly reasonable. It's perfectly reasonable. There's no, nothing that condemns that activity. Trade is not something that Jesus is opposed to. But the location of all of this, it probably started outside of the temple, but then sort of drifted into the temple over, over the years. And where it would have drifted into is the outer court. And the outer court of the temple was, uh, was required or given in order that people who were non-Jews or Gentiles could come and worship the one true and living God. It was like someone who was converted to Judaism. 
they could say, okay, I was like, uh, I am not of Jewish descent, but I still acknowledge the God of the, the Bible to be the true God. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worship him. And the, they, they had this place, the outer court, that was reserved for that, that activity for not, people of non-Jewish descent. The, the Old Testament is very clear that the Jewish people are called to be a light to the nations, to show them who God is by being set apart. They're to be set apart in order that the other people might fear God and worship him. And so God actually makes a place for non, people of non-Jewish descent in the temple in order that they might, they might worship him. But all of this trade, all of these things uh, that, uh, that are not designed uh, to, to be part of the life of the temple have drifted into the temple, a place of worship and prayer, the primary dwelling place of God. And so Jesus acts. This is the severity of the situation. When God's intents aren't, aren't met, action is required. And so Jesus acts. Again, not because of the business going on, but because it was going on in the wrong place. It was going on in God's dwelling place, a place that was reserved for prayer and worship. And so we see Jesus' action. We see Jesus' zealous response. Look at verse 17. Uh, right at the end of the action that Jesus takes, Jesus' disciples remember that it's written that zeal for your house has consumed me. And zeal isn't a word that we use a lot in our, our language. I don't know that anyone's ever described me as zealous or just use that in every everyday vernacular. But, but just think of jealousy. Like Jesus was jealous for the intent of, his, of the temple. Jesus was jealous for God's purposes of prayer and worship for the temple, even in this outer court, even where the, the Gentiles were, were able to worship. He didn't just say, oh, that's a throwaway place, don't worry about it, it'll be fine. He said, no, like, this is important. And the zeal that flows from a good and right understanding that of, of what is happening. And a, and a result of this zeal, action needs to be taken. Action needs to be taken as a result of the zeal that is consuming. And I ask this question again, and I want to keep it in front of us because I think it's important. Does this cut against the grain of our understanding of Jesus? Again, does this cut against the grain of our understanding of Jesus? If you read this, if you, if you read this little section of text, verses 13 through 17, and didn't know that Jesus was the primary actor, what opinions would you form of this individual? What, 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 what opinions would you form? The two things that came immediately to my mind when I asked that question is, calm down, champ, it's going to be okay, right? That's not the right answer, by the way. That's not the right answer. The, the second answer, though, I came up with in my mind when I asked the question, when they asked the question, what opinions would I form of a person who did something like this, is that person has a lot of conviction. They obviously really believe what, 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 uh, what's said to be true about this place. And if, and if that's the case, and which it is because it's, it's Jesus here, the reality is that the action of, is flowing out of deep con- conviction about God's dwelling place. Jesus is highlighting for the people in for us something very important. Jesus is highlighting for us the passion that God has for holiness. Jesus is highlighting for the people and for us 
the passion that God has for holiness. God has set apart the temple as his dwelling place. This is the world into which Jesus came. And then he has set apart a people to worship him there. Just as he is holy and set apart, so he sets his people apart and makes them holy. So Jesus flipping tables and driving people out with a whip communicates God's passion for his holiness, for his set-apartness. When you think about holiness, that sometimes it just becomes a churchy church word, but the reality is that holiness just means set-apart or pure. Or So if you set something aside for later, you're setting it apart. If you set something apart for a specific use, think about your personal budget, right? You've got a personal budget, and you say, hey, I'm going to set this aside for savings, for some specific use in the future. God sets his people apart specifically to honor and to glorify him and to demonstrate who he is to the nation. And holiness is really that serious. Holiness requires this type of dramatic activity that Jesus takes. Well, I once heard an interview with Dr. J.I. Packer. He's one of the greatest theological minds in the 21st century. And he said, uh, when he asked what his biggest concern with current, current Christianity was, he said it was a lack of seriousness about personal holiness. Understanding the set-apartness that God has provided in Jesus Christ. Understanding that people are set apart for particular purposes and to communicate God, who God is, to people. When God commands his people to be holy because he is holy, he's telling them just don't be like the world. Don't look like the world around you. He's telling them to live according to his law and to his commands, and this is how they will be set apart. And holiness is really that serious. Holiness really is that, that serious. But the good news of all of this is what we're driving towards here in this text is that Jesus does the setting apart. There's no amount of good work or good action or keeping of commands that can make us set apart. It's only through Jesus Christ that we are set apart. Let me, let me give you an example here about the passion element. God is passionate for holiness. If, if you were to tell me that you were passionate about cooking, you're like, hey, I'm so passionate about cooking, why don't you come over for dinner? And I said, okay, that sounds good. I love to eat. I'm glad you love to cook. And then I'll come over to your place and you throw a Hungry Man TV dinner in the microwave and give it to me, I'm going to question your passion for, whole, or for, for cooking. I'll say, hey, thanks for that. But, but then if I come over and you provide a, a, a five-course meal, choicest ingredients, obviously uh, uh, complex recipes, I want to say this guy's passionate about cooking. Right? You see the difference there. If Jesus were to, to, to say, God is passionate about his holiness, but then stand back and just allow, allow what takes place here in the temple to take place, and just sort of wring his hands and say, guys, come on, that's not okay. And just move, go on about his business. I was like, Jesus is not actually passionate about that. 
But Jesus is passionate about holiness. He's passionate that the place that God has set apart is in fact set apart for worship and prayer. And he's passionate about God's people. And so Jesus acts. His action proves that he's zealous. It proves that what he says is important is important. Sometimes as Christians, what we wind up doing is we sort of strip away the severity of God, which we see demonstrated here in Jesus flipping tables and dumping money all over. We strip away the severity of God. And Paul in Romans 11, 22, he says, he says that uh, to observe or to note the kindness of God. But in that same sentence, he says, note the kindness and the severity of God. God cares deeply about purity, the set-apartness, the holiness of his dwelling place. And there's no room for negotiation about what his dwelling place is intended for. It's intended for worship and it's intended for prayer. And when the people of God fail to acknowledge God's unwavering passion for his holiness, God doesn't just wring his hands. He acts. He brings about the purity and the set-apartness and the holiness of his dwelling place. And sometimes that comes with a whip made of cords. Sometimes it comes by dumping the money on the floor. And sometimes it comes with overturned tables. As we progress through John's gospel, I'm going to drive towards a conclusion here, and and we'll go to the Lord's table together. But uh, as we progress through John's gospel, we're going to see Jesus continue to overturn things. He's He's going to flip things over. Maybe not physical things like in this instance, but the zeal for his father's house will consume him as he goes to the cross. And this is where this text becomes important for us in this room. Because because it's not the physical temple that Jesus ultimately came to purify or set apart. It's God's people. You and me. In the scripture reading this morning, Samantha read from Acts chapter 17. In that text, Paul is in Athens. He's reasoning with, uh, with the men of Athens. He's reasoning them for uh, the one true God. And he tells them, The God who made the world and ha- everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. The temple in Jerusalem, the one which Jesus drove people out with a whip and flipped their tables over, that temple was made with the hands of men. But what Jesus came to set apart is a temple not made with hands of men, but a dwelling place for God that was bought when the nails went through it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 16-17, he says, Do you not know that you all, you all, all of you, not just you individually, but you, everyone, know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you, you all. These are all plural yous. There are no singular yous here. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. 
The, the saints gathered together. If you're in Christ here, the saints gathered together is the dwelling place of God. God's Spirit dwells in us. But not just the individual, in our togetherness. Prior to Christ, God dwelled in the tabernacle in the temple. And when Christ was here on earth, the Spirit of His Spirit dwelled within Him. And then, He poured out the Spirit on the church. And so God doesn't live here in these four walls and roof and every other uh, construction that bears the name church in Jamestown and in the United States and across the world. God dwells with his people where he has poured out his spirit. And we are the dwelling place of God, not the building, but the people. And so when I made the statement earlier, God ensures or establishes the purity of his dwelling place through Christ, we have to understand, Buffalo City Church, we have to understand that God is serious about our set-apartness. He is serious about our holiness. He is serious about our purity. So serious that he even sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die. And when the nails went through his hands, a temple was formed. Not one made with hands of men, but, but, one constructed by God. Through Jesus' sacrificial death, we are freed from sin, and we are free to pursue holiness through the strength that the Holy Spirit provides. Therefore, therefore, the set-apartness should mark us. It should, it should distinguish us from the world. There's no place for worldliness among God's people. There's no place for selfish gain. There's no place for power grabs. There's no place for pride. If the world looked in here, we've asked this question before, but I'm going to ask it again. If, we, if, we, if the world looked in here on a Sunday morning or throughout the course of the week into our lives as we gather together in various places as a church, would they say or would they see Men and women committed to living contrary to the world, or would they see men and women who are living according to the world? Would they look in and say, look, they're no better than us. Look, all they care about is money and material and bigger and better this and that. And if we look like the world, like the temple did when Jesus showed up for Passover, we can be sure that God will root out our sin. Ephesians 5, Paul says that Jesus died for the church so that he might sanctify her, make her holy, that's what that means, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her from the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That is what it means to be set apart. That is what it means to be holy. Jesus died to purify the dwelling place of God and therefore is passionate that we represent him as pure, as holy, and as set apart. Friends, would we trivialize the worship of God in his dwelling place with his people? Would we trivialize that? Or just like, we don't, it's, not, it's not about what we put on our bodies or how we look when we walk through the front door. 
It's not what we smell like or any of that outside. We would trivialize the worship of God's people by degrading people. Would we use them for our own gain? Would we cut down others with our words? Would we slander others to build ourselves up? We trivialize the worship of a holy God by doing these things, by the way that we conduct ourselves towards each other. Not because you put a hole in the wall wrestling. I don't know who's wrestling in here, but. Would we make this place, would we trivialize the worship of God in his dwelling place by making this a place to vent our self-pity or signal our self-importance? Or would we continually be absent or disengaged to pursue worldly things instead? Would we trivialize the worship of God in his dwelling place by justifying ourselves, trying to convince others of good intentions? Would we put up a front and claim to have it all together so that others would admire us? Or would we, as a church, be marked by the passion that God has for His holiness and then mirror that passion? Would we feel a passion that God is rightly viewed, honored, and revered? It is through the sacrifice of Christ that we are set apart. It's through the sacrifice of Jesus. We can't do it. Friends, we, if we all got together and put all of our energy together and said, we're going to do it, we're going to be holy, couldn't happen. It won't happen. It is through the sacrifice of Christ that we're set apart. We need to trust in the shed blood of Jesus. Through the sacrifice of Christ, our sin is paid for, and we are granted the ability, we are given the freedom to battle sin, to be set apart, to not look like the world. It's through Christ that we, the dwelling place of God, are purified. And so as God's people, when we, when we gather together, something we do regularly is celebrate the Lord's Supper together, celebrate communion together where we go to the Lord's table, where we take the elements, where we remember Christ's sacrifice, the body broken for us. It was rightfully our body because of our sin that should have been broken, but Jesus' body was broken for us. It was the shed blood. It was rightfully our blood that should have been set, shed, but Jesus shed His blood for the forgiveness of our sins in order that we might be set apart and holy, in order that we might be Children of God, welcomed into the family of God. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he took bread, or when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after, this, after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to take the elements. We're going to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to proclaim that it is only by the shed blood of Jesus that we can even gather in this room and have anything in common. 
We're going to do it in remembrance of him and proclaim his death that unifies us until he comes. So, logistics, when, you, uh, when you're prepared, uh, go ahead and take the elements. If you haven't yet picked them up, they're on the back table back there. Go ahead and make your way to the back and grab those. Um, but when you're prepared in your heart, I'm going to pray. The worship team's going to come up and, 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 and sing. And, uh, and when you're prepared in your heart, go ahead and receive those, the bread and the juice. This is for followers of Jesus. If you're in here this morning and you're unsure what it means to follow Jesus, if you're unsure what it means to be uh, in Christ, I would love to talk to you. Um, but this is a time to set this event aside and just in quiet contemplation, think about the things that we've talked about here this morning. If you've got children in here, they've made a credible profession of faith, by all means, invite them to join in and participate with you as a family. But if that is yet to happen, um, please, by all means, just use this as an opportunity to share the good news of the gospel with them, what the elements represent, why, why we take them together as a church. A good opportunity to share the gospel with your kids. It's a good opportunity to have a good conversation over the lunch table um, uh, for those of us who have children who have yet to believe. So I'm going to pray. Go ahead and receive the elements um, as the worship team comes up when you're prepared in your heart. And uh, and we'll sing together. Lord God, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord God, we thank you that you ensure the dwelling place of your people is pure and holy and set apart. God, we thank you that that is your people. And may we, as your people, not trivialize the worship of you when we gather together. God, may we consistently gather. May we learn to love you more. God, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that sets us apart. It's in his name that we pray.